If you have your Bibles, let's turn to the book of Exodus. Um, our, our goal today is going to be to look at one whole book of the Bible. So if you're on the 66-day Bible reading plan, um, then, uh, then I'm going to help you get one step closer on that today. So we will turn to the book of Exodus, um, and that's where we'll be uh, for most of our time today, though I, I might have us jump to a couple other verses as well. Um, before we begin, let's pray, and then we'll look at God's Word together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity we have today on this beautiful morning to gather with your people, to hear from your Word, to sing praise to you. Lord, uh, your Son says that eternal life is knowing you and knowing Jesus Christ. And we ask that you would help us to know you better this morning that we would see your glory, that we would increase in our fear of you, increase in our worship and devotion to you. Uh, Lord, help us by your Spirit uh, to see your glory as we look at this amazing book of the Bible. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Exodus is an epic story. You have a nation enslaved, an edict to kill every male child, a desperate mother, a rushing river in a floating basket, a slave in the palace, a desperate escape, a prodigal son returns, blood, frogs, gnats, flies, dead livestock, boils, hailstones, locusts, darkness. You have the smell of blood and cooked lamb, the wailing of parents, a greater escape, great jubilation, great Fear, the splitting of the sea, the drowning of the armies, and an enslaved nation free at last. The book of Exodus is an epic story. And for all the ways that that word epic is overused, this is truly the right word to use when you talk about the second book of the Bible. There's a reason why Hollywood, on several occasions, has tried to capture how amazing the story of Exodus is. Uh, From Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments, Charlton Heston, some of you grew up watching all 220 minutes of that on the regularly, to eight years ago, Ridley Scott's more recent film, Gods and Kings, uh, with the Exodus story, even to the famous animated classic, The Prince of Egypt, complete with all the songs that every good Christian parent teaches their kids. And... um, (laughs) Even Rugrats, the Nickelodeon show growing up, had a Passover story that they tried to capture. Everybody is enthralled with this story of Israel's escape from Egypt. Again, the most famous, the Prince of Egypt, complete with Mariah Carey, Whitney Houston, Steve Martin, and Martin Short, bringing all people together, uh, which is really great. So, And the reason why is because this story is amazing. Uh, it is an epic story, but as, as has often been said before, the book is better than the movie. And that's what we're going to see today. We're going to look at uh, the entirety of the book of Exodus. We're going to look at all 40 chapters. Now, we can't today read all 40 chapters. That would take us about two and a half hours, so we can't do that. And I can't explain every single detail of every single passage. I would love to. If you have questions about specific passages after, feel free to ask me. But my goal today, in one sense, is to sort of... uh, Wet your appetite. If, they're, if you're thinking like, uh, you know, it's time for me to start reading another book of the Bible, which book should I read? I think Exodus is a great book. It's practical. It's theological. It's helpful in understanding the biblical storyline. My goal today is to sort of give you an overall framework. How does this book work? How do these 40 chapters fit together? And if I'm reading through them, 
Just like on your GPS, it's helpful to know where you are. My hope today is if you were to jump anywhere in the book of Exodus, you would sort of know where you are in the literary outline of this book. Exodus is a book you need to be familiar with for several reasons. I'll give you four reasons uh, to start off why to be familiar before we jump in. First is it is the main event of the Old Testament. The Exodus story is the main event of the Old Testament. We talk today about being uh, uh, gospel-centered and cross-centered. The, the, the center in the Old Testament is Passover. All right, They're living the Exodus-centered life. They would have had a blog called the Passover Coalition, something like that, and they would have been looking back at this event because this was the event, and you know that if you read the Psalms. So, so many of the Psalms recount who God is. Well, who is God? He's the God that's rescued you out of Egypt. He took you through the Red Sea. Um, Joshua chapter 2, when they meet Rahab, Rahab says, we know what God did in splitting the Red Sea to deliver you. Deuteronomy, Moses' final speech, he says, you remember how God rescued you out of Egypt. And so this is the core event. This is the identifying event of the nation of Israel. Who are, who are they? They're the people of the one true God, the one true God who delivered them when they were helpless in bondage to Egypt. And yet he overthrew the, the world's greatest superpower. Second, we need to understand this book because it is misunderstood. It is misunderstood. It has uh, sometimes been put down just as a children's story, and there's been some confusion. You know, so for instance, Hollywood has introduced us to these two characters. Uh, this is Hotep and Huey. Um, that's the name of their character. Steve Martin, Martin Short, to the voices. These are they're not in the Bible. The, these two aren't there. There are magicians there. These two specific ones. Uh, we don't think are there. The other thing that Hollywood does is it really leans into this like brotherly affection between Moses and Ramses. And that, I think all of them do that. They, they love this sort of like, oh, they were brothers and they're torn apart. And the Bible doesn't give us that idea. In fact, if you read through Exodus, it doesn't seem like Moses is really sad at all about the destruction of Egypt. Uh, he, he's not feeling any sort of inner turmoil, uh, not any sort of a nostalgic, familial uh, emotions. He, he seems to understand his purpose in God's plan better than Israel does, and he's for it. So we need to understand this because Hollywood has tainted it a little bit. I do think some of the, the scenes in the movies capture it pretty well, but you can ask me about those later. Third, uh, Exodus helps us understand our lives as Christians. Helps us understand our lives as Christians. What is the Christian life? Well, the Christian life is about believing in the promises of God. The Christian life involves sanctification, obedience to the commands of God, evangelism. All of these themes are in Exodus. Exodus talks about why we obey. Exodus talks about what our eternal destiny is. Exodus portrays for us a picture of freedom and explains to us the biblical idea of freedom. And so we want the book of Exodus because I think if you were to take time to study this book, you would find it incredibly relevant to your life today. Uh, again, we can talk more about that. Finally, here's where we want to get into the text a little bit. Exodus helps us meet God. Exodus helps us meet God. Take your Bible if you're already now in the book of Exodus. So let's go there and let's start in chapter 6, verse 7. I want to... Uh, I want to propose a theme to the book of Exodus. Let's start in Exodus chapter 6. We'll look at verse 7. 
This is uh, Moses and Aaron are discouraged because they went to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh did not want to listen to them the first time. And the people of Israel said, and back in chapter 5, why have you done this harm to us? It would have been better if you tried not to liberate us. And in verse 7, God is in the middle of promising, I am going to accomplish my purposes. And he says, then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am Yahweh, your God. Now take a look at chapter 7, verse 5. 7, verse 5. He act, I'm going to bring these judgments upon the house of Israel. Why? Verse 5. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. Let's go to chapter 8, verse 10. You're going to hear some repetition. Then he said, tomorrow. So he said, may it be according to your word that you may know that there is no one like Yahweh our God. Chapter 8, verse 22. But on that day, I will make a distinction for the land of Goshen, where my people are living, so that no swarms of flies will be there, that you may know that I, Yahweh, am in the midst of the land. Let's go one more. 11, verse 7. 11, verse 7. Actually, jump, jump ahead. That's a good one. But look at, let's go to 14. 14, 4. This is just creating the theme for us. This is uh, now when they have escaped, their backs are at the Red Sea. Verse 4, Thus I will harden Pharaoh's heart with strength, and he will pursue them, and I will be glorified through Pharaoh and all his army, so that the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh. What is the book of Exodus about? It's about Yahweh, the one true God, telling people what he's like. It's his self-revelation. More so, some commentators say, than any book in the Old Testament, the foundational revelation of who God is, is the book of Exodus. A few weeks ago, um, sorry, not a few weeks ago, a few months ago, on a Sunday morning, I had a student come up to me. She said she was brand new, Roman Catholic background. And she said, hey, I'm I'm starting to figure out the Bible more. Um, What's a book of the Bible I should read if I want to know what God is like? That's a really good question from a visitor. My answer uh, was the Gospel of Mark, uh, because the Gospel of Mark is about Jesus, and Jesus is the image of God, and there is no God in heaven who is not like Jesus. So if you want to know what God's like, you look at Jesus. But if I could give an Old Testament answer to that, it would have been without a doubt the book of Exodus, because Exodus is God saying who he is. Therefore, Exodus is not just a history of what God did one time, It's a picture of who he is at all times. The God you pray to today, the God you sing to during second hour, the God you seek to obey, what is he like? Who is he? What's the the image that you have of him? The answer is he's the God that's revealed in the Exodus event. It's who he is, not just something he's done one time which I think is tremendous news because that means we don't have to guess what God is like. We can know who God is because he has revealed himself. And again, that is what eternal life is. John seventeen three, I have up here, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so that's our goal as we look at Exodus. My prayer is that you'd be encouraged as we get to see who God is and you would practically understand who is this God I worship, this God I confess to this God I repent for, uh, this God I devote my life to. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to work our way through the rest of the book of Exodus. Now, I just want to give you those themes on the front end. Um, I'm going to try to condense 
13 hours of preaching over the book of Exodus in the next 55 minutes. So we'll see how we do. Um, I'm going to break it into 12 sort of scenes. Now I'm going to ask a question. How many of you think way back when, how many of you remember DVDs? Way back in the past. DVDs. Very good. Okay, good. Okay. I was, I was, I was worried. I, I knew it was an outdated reference. Um, and you remember DVDs. There was like the menu. And then do you remember scene selection? If you wanted to skip ahead. Okay. And then scene selection would break it down into little boxes. And every scene would almost be given a, a title. You know, it, it, it describe it like this. Okay. So that's what I'm going to do with Exodus. I'm going to give you the 12 scenes and, and sort of a little title of how to think of these 12 scenes. I think that's going to help you break down these 40 chapters, understand the story, the flow of where we're going. So let's do this. First, Exodus 1 and 2. Exodus 1 and 2, we'll call this the prologue. Uh, I had the opportunity to preach this sometime, I think, in the last year on a Sunday night. Um, so if you want to learn more in the first two chapters, you can go listen to that. But Exodus 1 and 2, it's really funny. This is the part that the movies focus on a ton. I mean, this is like, we need to kill all the firstborn, put Moses in the basket, uh, he goes to Midian. Um, this, this is like, takes like 40 to 50% of the, uh, of the movies. But in this book, in, the, in, the, uh, in Exodus, it's only the prologue. Now, we all understand what a prologue is, right? It's, it's an opening scene that's meant to give the background. It's, it's either something that's happened in the past, something short. So all of the Lord of the Rings movies have a prologue at the beginning. Um, let me, what else do we have here? Uh, Disney movies all start, the princess movies, right? It's like the first three minutes, really happy, really sad. Okay, now that the drama's going to unfold. Or the, I know the Christian example would maybe be a Buttercup and Wesley at the beginning of Princess Bride. That would help you all out. That opening scene, as you wish, helps you understand, like, okay, I have some background to the story. That's what this is. That's what the prologue is. And in the background, the background begins as sort of like a, um, a heavyweight fight. So, so let me explain. What you have is you get into the first two chapters a picture of Pharaoh's rebellion, not just him hating the Israelites, but his rebellion against God. So verse, take a look at chapter 1 now, and we'll work through the rest of the book now going forward. Chapter 1 says, The sons of Israel, tell me if this sounds familiar. The sons of Israel were fruitful, and increased and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. Where have we heard language like that before? Increased, multiplied, filled the land. That's that's creation language, right? That's Genesis chapter 1. And that's not a coincidence. What, what, What is happening here is God, through the biblical authors, explaining that Exodus, or sorry, that Israel is the means by which God is now accomplishing his purposes in the world. All right, so Adam and Eve fell. Exodus, or Genesis 12, God makes a problem, uh, promise to Abraham. And now the seed of Abraham is the means by which God is having his people uh, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And so when Pharaoh says they're becoming too great, let's put them to hard work or they're, they're still growing, let's have the midwives kill the sons, or that's still out of control, so let's drown all the newborns in the river. He's not just rebelling against uh, population growth. He's rebelling against God's purposes, God's plan that he wants to accomplish through his nation. And Pharaoh does present himself sort of uh, 
Well, he presents himself in rebellion as well. If you look at chapter 1, verse 14, it says, They made their lives bitter with hard slave labor and mortar and bricks. The phrase there, mortar and bricks, is used uh, in the Tower of Babel. And we did see there in verse 11 that he's having them build these storehouses, Pithom and Ramses. Pharaoh is sort of Babel 2.0, trying to use the Israelites to build monuments to his own glory. And he's trying to snuff them out in rebellion against God. That's who Pharaoh is. His, his war is theological. Maybe he's aware of it, maybe he's not, but that's who he is. What's interesting as you look at this is God's dominance. You get foreshadowing that, that God's purposes stand. So in verse 12 it says, The more they afflicted them, the more the people multiplied. And then when they say that the midwives, let's ask the midwives to, to kill the newborn babies, What you have is Pharaoh's plans being overturned by these women, verse 15, one of whom was named Shifra and the other who was named Puah. Verse 17, the midwives feared God, did not do as the king of Egypt had spoken to them, but let the boys live. As a result, result, God gives them families. He blesses them. But his plans, again, Pharaoh's plans are constantly overturned. In fact, it's really interesting because he says, Verse 22, every son who is born, you are to cast into the Nile, but every daughter you to keep alive, right? The daughters aren't really a threat. It's the sons that are a threat. Well, what do you have? You have two daughters of the Israelites preserve a baby. And then chapter 2, Pharaoh's own daughter keeps Moses alive. Irony there. That no matter what Pharaoh can do, even his own daughter is used against him to fulfill God's purposes, to eventually rescue God's people. And that's what you see in these first two chapters as well. You see Yahweh's preservation. He preserves the midwives who fear him. A lesson that's going to be reinforced later that you should refere the God who you can't see more than the Pharaoh who you can see. He preserves, God's, he preserves uh, Moses. It's really interesting. Verse 3, uh, which says, When she could not hide him any longer, this is chapter 2, when she could not hide him any longer, she took for Moses... It says a basket, in some of your translations, the LSB does a great job of an ark. It says she took an ark and placed Moses in an ark. Why is that? Well, it's because the word tabah is only used in the account of Noah back in Genesis 6, 7, and 8. And the only other time it's used is right here in Exodus 2. Why is that? Because, well, God's sort of thing is ark salvation. And we know God is involved in the life of Moses because it's salvation by ark. It's the author's way of letting us know uh, of Yahweh's involvement in the story. Let's do one other thing, and then we need to move to the next chapter. Uh, It's interesting. Chapter 2 ends like this. Here's how the prologue ends. So God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel, and God knew them. So what did we learn in the first two chapters? Pharaoh is rebellious. God is powerful, and he cares for his people. He hears their suffering. He knows their pain. He is aware of his own promises, and he will fulfill them. So let's keep it moving here. Let's go to Exodus 3 and 4. So now that the drama is sort of built, Exodus 3 and 4, let's call this, we'll call this first impressions. First impressions, because this is where we meet God. This is that famous scene of the burning bush. Moses, verse 2, says that the angel of Yahweh appeared to him, or in chapter 3, in a blazing fire from the midst of the bush. 
And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. That's what catches his eye. It's on fire, but it's this uh, self-sustaining, ongoing fire. It does not extinguish. And so Moses says, I need to look at it. And what ends up happening here is in these chapters, we get our first detailed introduction to who God is. Again, who God is, not just then, but who God is today. And what we find first is that God is holy. He's completely other. He said, uh, verse 4, Yahweh saw that he turned aside to look. So God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. Moses said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Remove your sandals from your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. The beginning of our intro to God is that God is a holy God. And when we say holy, we, what often gets uh, understood is purity, that God is sinless and it is true. God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. Um, but, but holy has more than just the, the idea of morality. So for example, um, well, example here, holy ground. Does that mean that the ground never told a lie? Does that mean that the, the ground never loses its temper with anybody? No, right? What does holy mean there then? It means, well, set apart. And so what we learn from God is he's, he's other than us. He's, he's not like us. He, he's above us. This, this speaks of God's transcendence, that he is completely set apart. This is a, this is a theme that we'll see in Exodus because, because God isn't the only God in the book of Exodus, you could say. The Egyptians worshipped thousands of God. Their main deity that they saw every day was Pharaoh. And yet we'll see later that what the message of this first half of the book is, is there's, there's nobody like this God. This God, Yahweh, is set apart from all other gods. None match His glory. None see His transcendence. And yet, look, verse 7 it says, And Yahweh said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sufferings. Isn't that amazing? You have a God who's totally, unimaginably transcendent and intimately involved with and knowledgeable of the situations of his people. He says, verse 8, I have come down to deliver them. You ask, what is the book of Exodus about? And you'll hear people say, well, it's about Moses leading the people out. Friends, that's not correct. It's about God leading his people out. He's not a distant savior. He's involved with and personally rescues them. It'll say in chapter 19 how he himself bore them on eagles' wings. That's who the God is that we worship today. He is the God who is above all that we can think, greater than we can imagine, more glorious, more majestic, and yet, it says he's what? Near to the brokenhearted. And Jesus says, and lo, I am with you always. That's the beauty of the God that we serve. So God delivers them. Moses has a question He says to him, verse 13, Moses said to God, Behold, I am about to come to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they will say to me, What's his name? What shall I say to them? What's your name? What should I say your name is? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. 
And he said, Thus shall you say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And furthermore, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. Yahweh, this is my name forever. This is my memorial name from generation to generation. What do we do with this? This is a key part. We're not going to be able to cover everything in chapter 3 and 4, but this is a key to understanding who God is. And uh, Abner Chow taught on this a, a few months ago as well. It's a great sermon if you list it up. Yahweh, what does it mean? The word Yahweh is from the, the verb hayah. It means to be. Uh, I am who I am. He is who he is. Well, that gives us three different sort of uh, implications we could draw from that. One of them is aseity, is the fancy word to use for it. It's self-existence. That God is a God who exists. And he exists on his own. He, he doesn't need anything. right? He, he's the God who's always existed, who just always is. He is who he is because he is. Um, we realize that God doesn't need us, right? So one of the illustrations I love to talk to the students is they, they love these things, these, these Apple phones, and to be honest, we do too. Um, here's the reality. If everyone in the country decided to stop buying Apple products, you know what would happen? They, they'd go out of business, right? They are, as, as much as we think, I need this to survive, they need us to survive, but if everyone in the world decided to stop worshiping God, he would continue to be the most glorious, the most marvelous being in all of existence. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need us to survive. His feelings would not get hurt. His vitality would not be drained. He doesn't need us because he is. He always exists. The, the second thing we draw from that is his eternality. He's always existed. So he is who he is. That's always been the case because it's part of his name. It's part of his nature, uh, his eternality. But the third thing I want to uh, highlight in this is it's, it's his consistency. Otherwise said as his immutability, his unchangeability. He is who he is, and he always will be who he is. So who is Yahweh? He is the God that always acts like Yahweh. You can expect that God will always act like God. That's the message of Exodus. That's what we get from his name here. Yahweh will always act according to his nature. Again, we read that earlier. You might know I am Yahweh, you know I am Yahweh, you know I am Yahweh. This is who I am. This is how I act according to who I am. We've all met the frustration before of having those who are in authority that you don't know what they're going to be like, either a teacher in the past or a boss in the present. Maybe a relative that you have no idea. Am I going to walk in and is it going to be a good day today or a bad day today? I don't know what they're going to act like. With God, you don't have to guess. The, what God says is, I always act like who I am. Now, what the rest of the book of Exodus does is fill in for us who he is. So we can know what he's like, so we can always understand his nature. You can always expect God to act like God. The rest of this section, chapter 3 and 4, uh, reinforces that Moses is pretty lame uh, and that God is awesome. Moses has got all sorts of doubts. Um, yeah, uh, the best is like he, he says, they're not going to listen. I'm not a good speaker. Please send someone else. That's Moses' uh, message. Let's keep going. Let's spend a shorter time on this one. Chapters 5 and 6, we'll call it hard to believe. Hard to believe. You just learn more about the characters here in the story. So... 
verse 5, chapter 2, uh, sorry, ch- chapter 5, verse 2. But Pharaoh said, who is Yahweh that I should listen to his voice to let Israel go? So Pharaoh asked a really bad question, who is Yahweh? He's going to get an answer that he didn't really want. Um, and, but he's asking with uh, his own pride, well, who is God that I should listen to him? And what he does, you know this, when Moses and Aaron make this request, they increase the labor, they make it harder for the Israelites, they make them gather their own straw. Um, so you see Pharaoh is doubling down. You also see, it's really interesting, you learn about the nature of Israel here. So look at chapter 4, verse 31. Okay, chapter 4, verse 31, this is after Moses and Aaron told them about uh, God's revelation. The people believed, and they heard... The Yahweh cared about the sons of Israel, that he had seen their affliction, and so they bowed low and worshipped, right? They, they are going to worship him. They're like, yes, God is going to deliver us. And then it comes to chapter 5, verse 21. And they said to Moses and Aaron, May Yahweh look upon you and judge, for you have made us a foul smell in Pharaoh's sight. You made us stink, and in the sight of his servants, to put a sword in their hand, to kill us. All right, this is fair weather faith. Israel loves God when he treats them very well, and they don't really love God at any time it gets hard, with any sort of difficulty whatsoever. That's foreshadowing of things to come that we'll see. Uh, but you also get to see here who, who God is. And again, one more part on his name, chapter 6, verse 2. It said, God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh, and this is my name, and I appear to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. Again, he's, he's reinforcing his name in the midst of resistance. No, I'm, I've not changed. He goes, I appear to them as God Almighty, but by my name, Yahweh, I was not known to them. Now, there is some debate here of what this passage means. One interpretation is that God Almighty, El Shaddai, uh, nobody breaking the song, uh, that God Almighty there is, uh, is the name that Abraham, Isaac, and, knew, and uh, Jacob knew him as. And his name Yahweh is new for the first time ever said in history right here in Exodus. That's one interpretation. And there's some good arguments for that. The one I'm going to lean towards is that they've always known his name as Yahweh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob knew the name Yahweh, said Yahweh, called him Yahweh. Um, But the full understanding of who he is is revealed here. Uh, I'll I'll illustrate using a very cheesy illustration I use when I talk about the high school students. We have an intern in high school ministry whose name is Ben. Ben is 6'6", and he plays volleyball. And I'll say, look, if if you know, some of you know that Ben plays volleyball, But if you go to a TMU volleyball game and you see him jump and you see him spike and you experience it, well, now you know in a different way. Different might be like uh, some of you, I might know that you cook, but then I come over and I try all the, you know, fancy ingredients and the lemon reduction and all the other techniques that you have. And I've tasted it. And now, now I know that you can cook. So did they know his name is Yahweh? I think the answer to that is yes. But in Exodus, they really get to know, okay, this really is, we've experienced, we see who God is. And so God is revealing himself in the midst of resistance. 
Let's, uh, let's move to the next scene. Exodus 7 through 10. Yahweh strikes Egypt. Yahweh strikes Egypt. These are the, the first nine of the ten plagues. And in Hebrew, the word um, that the, uh, Israel, the Jews have said, it's, they've not called it the ten plagues, they've called it the ten strikes. It's, it's God striking out at the Egyptians. Uh, this is often the scene in the movies where it's like a montage uh, where they're going through it really quick. Although it's, it's four chapters long, it's, it's pretty robust. There's a lot of detail that's happening here. But it is right. The plagues are horrific. Uh, I mean, this is not like, oh, look at the frogs getting the Egyptians. Like, this is, this is, this is terrifying. Uh, it's foreshadowing of, of some of the things that we'll see in the book of Revelation. Uh, but if you think about these plagues, the river turning to blood. Okay, Egypt's strength was the Nile River. That, that's where they got their power. E- Egypt was a nation that was hundreds of miles long and only a few miles wide. And the reason why they were able to dominate the region, the reason, the reason why they're the greatest superpower in the world at that time is because of the Nile. And Yahweh turns it to blood. And then out of it come frogs, and then gnats, and then you get flies, and all their livestock die. Boils on their skin. What you also have with the plagues is you have this, um, it's sort of three sets of three that happen. So uh, if you have your Bible... Um, look at chapter 7, verse 14. I think I have this right. Yeah. Chapter 7, verse 14. It says, Then Yahweh said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard with firmness. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Let's stop there. Let's go to chapter 8, verse 20. So that was during plague 1. Then you have plague 2 and plague 3. Then you have plague 4. Starts in chapter 8, verse 20. Rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh as he comes out to the water. So there you have plague 4, and you have plague 5 and plague 6. And then one more, chapter 9, verse 13. Yahweh said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh. Now it doesn't say it, but you can guess where Pharaoh's going. Out to the water at that time. So it's almost like you have three sets of three at every time the cycle resets where there's this, this meeting at the water. And if you look at the three plagues, they're sort of moving uh, up in regards to geography. So the first three have to do with the water, right? The blood turning to water. Uh, you have the frogs coming out of the water. The gnats, which are usually associated with water-like areas. And then the next three sort of seem to be an attack on the land. So you have flies attacking the people in their homes, the livestock dying, boils on the skin of the people. And then the last three, uh, these are celestial. These are in the skies, right? You have, I mean, you have hailstones, uh, fiery hailstones coming down on the people. Um, you, you've got locusts traveling uh, to come consume the crops. And then you have darkness. So every time it goes from those, even those first three are sort of bothersome. The next three are like, we're in trouble. And the final three are like, no, we're going to die. In fact, the, the magicians themselves go from, okay, we can replicate the gnats to this is the finger of God, to all of Egypt is in ruin because of what's happening. So God is terrorizing them. But if you want to commentary what's happening here, go to verse 7. Or sorry, chapter 7. Chapter 7 is sort of the brief description of what is happening with the plagues. If you want a total overview of it, 
It's just chapter 7, it's verses 1 through 13. Um, He says, I'm going to, verse 2, You shall speak all I command you, and your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh. Let the sons of Israel go out to the land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart with stiffness, that I may multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. By the way, Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. It's interesting, you have multiple times where it says Pharaoh hardens his own heart. And then other times where Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and other times it says where Yahweh hardens Pharaoh's heart. By the way, the word hardened there, I, I think um, blindness is part of it. Part of hardened is encouragement. Right? Pharaoh wants to rebel, and, and God is like saying, well, go for that. You've totally got this. Keep going in your rebellion. It's going to go really great for you. And, and that's, that's the, 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 the damage that's, that's happening here. Um, Verse, let's see, verse 11 of chapter 7. Then Pharaoh called, uh, well, chapter, verse 10. So Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh, and thus they did just as Yahweh had commanded. Aaron threw his staff down before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. And you're familiar with the scene, you're playing with the big boys now. Verse 11, then Pharaoh also called for his wise men and the sorcerers, and they also, the magicians of Egypt, did the same with their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff, and they became serpents, but Aaron's staff, here it is, Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. If you want a snapshot of what happens in the plagues, it's right there. It's Yahweh swallowing up Egypt, utterly destroying them. And as he devastates them time and time again, it becomes very clear that he is the one who is in charge. He is more powerful than all the gods of the Egyptians. He is certainly more powerful than Pharaoh. Now, one of the questions that you could ask is this, why nine? Why so many? I mean, he could have just done it with frogs, right? That'd be it. Why, why nine? We actually get that answer in chapter nine, and it's very important that we see this with the plagues. Why nine plagues? And you're going to be uh, not so surprised when you read it. Verse 13, rise up early in the morning, stand before Pharaoh. Verse 14, for this time I will send all my plagues against your heart and amongst your servants and your people so that you may know there is no one like me in all the earth. For if by now I had sent forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would then have been wiped out from the earth. But indeed for this reason I have caused you to stand in order to show you my power, and in order to recount my name through all the earth. God uses Egypt as his stage. His superpower, or that superpower gets used and is struck over and over again. One, so you would know this is no fluke win, but every time God is going to win. And he uses this global superpower as his sounding board to announce to the whole world repeatedly, I am the one true God and there's no one like me. That's why there's nine. He wants us, to, without a doubt, to recognize who God is. I want to show you one more thing. This is really good. Chapter 9, verse 27. Chapter 9, verse 27. Pharaoh said, I have sinned this time. Yahweh is the righteous one. And I and my people are the wicked ones. That is really good confession. But that's not repentance. And I think that's a good warning for us. I think that's one of the best 
I mean, if this week we have camp. You could pray for us. We leave Thursday night. We have 970 students that are going to be there between our church and the other churches. It would be so great if every student said, uh, this time, uh, I have sinned, Yahweh is righteous, I am the wicked one. But repentance is more than confession. It's more than just saying our sin is wrong. It's then actually turning from that sin. And I'm concerned for my own heart and, and for all of us that there are times where we can maybe turn on the waterworks when it comes to our sin, but not actually turn from our sin. And let Pharaoh be a warning that repentance certainly starts with confession, but it does not stop with confession. Let's move to the, the most beautiful scene, the Passover. The Passover. I'm going I'm to pick up the pace here a little bit, though this, is my, this might be my favorite section to look at. Chapter 11 begins... Verses 1 through, I mean, let's just take a look at this. Hold in your fingers if you can. Chapters 11, 12, and 13. Just so you could kind of look at all of it. Okay, so this is, this is uh, you, have, you have three chapters here. And what you have is in 11, 1 through 10, you have the final plague promised. God says, uh, I'm going to go through the night and kill the firstborn. After this one, Pharaoh's going to let you go. In fact, I'm going to give you favor in the sight of the people, thus you will plunder the Egyptians, uh, which is interesting. Just like Abraham earlier in Genesis went to Pharaoh and left with a bunch of his riches, just like Isaac went to Pharaoh and left with a bunch of his riches, now you have Egypt going in, or sorry, Israel going into the heart of Egypt for, for 400 years and leaving with a bunch of their wealth. It's like the same story over and over again. Anyway. You have that promise in chapter 11, but then the plague itself it only occurs in chapter 12, verse 29 to 32. Happened at midnight that Yahweh struck all the firstborn. and I mean, this is terrifying. This is the moaning of every Egyptian parent as they wake up to find their, their firstborn dead. And, and he tells them to leave. Go serve Yahweh as you have spoken, verse 31. And they And they they leave in haste. They leave quickly. Verse 35, the Egyptians give them gold and silver, and uh, they're out of town, and a multitude of people come with them. Verse 40 says they were in there for 430 years. And then you skip ahead to chapter 13, verse 17, and I love this picture. You had deliverance promised, and then deliverance happens, and then what does deliverance get us? It happened that when Pharaoh had let the people go, God did not guide them by the way of the land of the Philistines. Even though it was near, for God said, lest the people change their minds. Isn't it amazing? You get this picture, verse 21. Uh, It says, And Yahweh was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to guide them on the way, and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light, that they might go by day and by night. And he did not take away the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. Isn't that a beautiful picture? God, God rescues his people, and it's him personally who's leading them out. Him who knows their heart, that even as he's just rescued them, he says, they can't handle going to the Philistines right now. I'm going to take them this way because I know my people, I've rescued my people, and I know what they can handle. It's this beautiful picture. So here's the question. Um, those three chapters, I just described like 25 verses of it. And there's, there's a lot of verses in these chapters. So what happens all in between? The Passover. The 10th plague, 
which has this description about deliverance coming, deliverance happens, now you have it. How did it happen? It happened via Passover. We're, we're familiar with the Passover, but in case you're not, let's read chapter 12. It says, starting in verse 1, let's understand the importance of this. This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. You understand, Israel, what I'm about to do is going to totally shape your identity. Your calendar is now going to be shaped by this event. Okay, This is, this is going to be who you are, even as you look at months and weeks and years. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the 10th of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's household. A lamb for each household. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them, according to what each man should eat, you to apportion the lamb. Your lamb shall be a male without blemish, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall slaughter it at twilight. Moreover, thou shalt take, they shall take some of the blood... And put it on the doorpost and on the lintel of the house in which they eat it. And they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted with fire. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled uh, at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs, with its, along with its entrails. You shall not leave any of it over until the morning. But whatever is left of it until morning, you shall burn with fire. Now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Passover of Yahweh. What do we learn from this? What is this meal? Oh, this meal is important for several reasons. Like I already said, it, it talks about the identity of Israel. It's, it's now their new month, their new calendar. You also notice that one of the things that's happening here is the emphasis on speed. So they roast it. Why? Because that's the quickest way to eat it. They don't leave any leftovers. Why? Because they're leaving. They're not coming back. Unleavened bread. Why? Because, well, this is about speed again. We don't have time for the bread to raise. You're going to eat it with your belt girded, sandals on your feet, and your staff in hand. Why? Because we're going out of here. Okay, we're eating this in faith. We're, we're trusting. We're going to put this blood on the door, trusting that God's going to deliver us. We're going to eat this. We're going to leave everything behind because we are getting out of Egypt tonight and it's going to happen like that. That's the emphasis here. It's, there's no leftovers, okay? There, there's no Tupperware. There's nothing they're bringing with them. They're, they're, they're getting out of here. And it's a picture that it's only because what God has done. God has delivered us quickly. What else is remembered here? Well, we read that it's verse 12 and 13 says, when God sees the blood on the doorpost, he'll pass over. Look at verse 23. Yahweh will pass through to smite the Egyptians. He will see the blood on the lintel on the two doorposts. And Yahweh will pass over the doorway and will not allow the destroyer to come into your house. And you shall keep this event as a statue for you and your children forever. Uh, in fact, the end of chapter 12 goes into explaining, in some chapter 13, how they're supposed to Practice this over and over. This is supposed to be what they do regularly. Every year, they're going to remember that God uh, rescued them this way. It is interesting, by the way, as a side note, it says in chapter uh, 12, verse 48, no uncircumcised person may eat of it. So it's interesting. God wants them to do the one-time sign of devotion uh, to him before they participate in the uh, regularly celebrated 
remembrance of his deliverance. I think, by the way, that's a good reason why we say you should get baptized, one-time act of devotion to God, before you participate in communion, the regular celebration of his salvation. But we could debate that another time. So um, anyway, let's back in chapter 12. It says, verse 25, And it will be that when you enter the land which Yahweh will give you, as he promised, you shall keep uh, this new service. And it will be when your children say, what is, the, what is the meaning of this new service to you? That you shall say, notice what they're going to remember, it is a Passover sacrifice to Yahweh who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians but delivered our homes. Now check this out. Their annual memory of this is that God's wrath passed over them. It's not just that Egypt was destroyed and that they were delivered, but the wrath didn't fall on them. Now, why didn't the wrath fall on them? The answer is the blood on the doorpost. It's almost as if the lamb died instead of the people of Israel. And in verse 5, it says, You shall, of uh, chapter 12, your lamb shall be a male without blemish. That's similar to the language that Peter uses in 1 Peter 2. Uh, uh, you were bought, uh, a lamb without blemish, precious blood of Jesus, 1 Peter 1. Um, um, you guys take a look at chapter 12. We'll, we'll, we'll end on this. Chapter 12, verse 46. It shall be eaten in a single house. You shall not bring forth any of the flesh outside of the house, and you shall not break any bone of it. Okay, so John 19, none of his bones were broken. And John says, thus to fulfill what was said by Moses. So is Moses here promising that, uh, that a Messiah is going to come one day and none of his bones will be broken either? No, that's, that's not what's happening here. But what John was saying is that, remember that time when a lamb died in the place of the people and none of his bones were broken and the people were delivered? That's what's happening right here on the cross. It's what John is saying. So here's the question. How do I know that if I trust in the Lamb of God, that I will be delivered. It's because it's something God's already done. God's already rescued people through the substitutionary death of a lamb. It's a thing he does. And so the reason why you can trust, that if you, like John the Baptist says, behold the Lamb of God, and trust in the spotless Lamb to be your deliverance, you can trust that it will happen because, well, God's already done that. It's, it's who he is as Yahweh. Yahweh embraces those who trust in the substitutionary death of a lamb and delivers them. For him not to do that would be very un-Yahweh-ish of him. And thank God he always acts according to his nature. Let's fast forward. We could just stew on that there. But number 14, uh, the song at the sea. Every good story has a musical number. And that's what you have here, Exodus 14. Let's, let's pick up the pace here. Um, Exodus, Exodus chapter 14, um, Yahweh's playing a game of cat and mouse. So verse, chapter 14, verse 2, speak to the sons of Israel and tell them to turn back. Why? Well, I'm going to have you turn back to make it look like you don't know what you're doing. 
and I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart to go, they don't know what they're doing, let's go after them. Carrot, stick, etc. And that's what happens here, is Pharaoh's army comes out, because God's heart hardens them. I'm going to have to summarize here. What becomes very apparent in chapter 14 is that Israel has no faith in God because they panic uh, as soon as they see uh, uh, verse 10. Now Pharaoh drew near and the sons of Israel lifted up their eyes uh, and they saw them marching and uh, they say to Moses, verse 11, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us out to die in the wilderness? Right? They, they have no faith in who God is. And you know what happens is, well, God fights for Israel. It's God who wins the battle for them. It's God who splits the sea, which is an amazing miracle that I think CGI causes us to take for granted, that there is no drop of water on the sand. They cross through, the Egyptians come through, and God drowns them. Now, you might think that there's this picture of the Egyptians looking up, verse 30, or sorry, Israel looking up, verse 30, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. And you might think, man, that's that's uh, that's kind of harsh. I mean, that's a brutal picture. That's, uh, that's, that's not apropos in our society today. The Israelites see that, and they do three things. They fear God, which means they, they're in awe of Him, because this, this nation that held them captive for 400 years is now defeated. They believed God. So there's a connection between fearing Him and believing Him, trusting His promises. And then they bust into song. I mean, they sing. In chapter 15, uh, 1 through 21, I mean, this is a celebratory song. Uh, this, this is not some ho-hum dirge. I mean, this is them, they're singing with all the gusto of singing Sweet Caroline at a Red Sox game. I mean, they, they, are, they are going for it. And, uh, and because they sing and they're, listen, I will sing to Yahweh. He is highly exalted. The horse and its rider, he is hurled into the sea. They sing about his strength. Verse three, they sing that he is a warrior. They sing verse five, that the enemy went down into the depths like a stone. Uh, that even as the enemy, verse 9, said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall be fulfilled against them, I will draw out my sword, my hand will dispossess them, but you, Lord, blew with your wind, the sea covered them, stone language again, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. In fact, they are, are so thrilled and rejoicing God, they even have the expectation now as they head towards the promised land, that God will treat the enemies in the future the way he's treated his enemies in the past. It says, verse 16, terror and dread fall upon them. This is talking about Moab and the Canaanites. But the greatness of your arm, by the greatness of your arm, they are as still as a stone. Rock language again, because God deals with enemies in the past, or in the future, the way he deals with enemies in the past. By the way, praise God. I mean, the reversal is amazing, right? God says, Israel is my firstborn. You kill my firstborn, I kill your firstborn. You throw my children in the, in the Nile, I will throw your armies in the Red Sea. And which is interesting because when you look at Revelation, the great enemy of God's people, sin, Satan, uh, death, all of those are not thrown into the Red Sea. They are thrown into a lake of fire at the end as God again conquers uh, his enemies and delivers his people and shows his glory uh, by defeating those that they could not defeat. It's an amazing scene. Verse 11, who is like you among the gods, O Yahweh? who is like you, majestic in holiness, fearsome in praises, working wonders. Exodus 1 through 15, there is no one like the matchless God of Israel. And if you read Exodus right, that should be the takeaway, that this is a holy God. There's nobody 
like him. Here's the funny part. There's still like 25 chapters in the book. And this is where most of the movies end. So what happens next? 15, 18. We'll just call this, what is Israel's biggest problem? The issue here is that while God has taken Israel out of Egypt, He has not taken the Egypt out of Israel. Because Israel's immediate response is that they go three days, chapter 15, verse 22, and they find no water. And they grumble. And then later they will find no food. And they'll complain. What's amazing is, is first, Second Peter 1.3, God has provided everything we need for life and godliness. God provides for His people. God always gives His people exactly what they need. He he makes water for them. Um, he provides food for them. This is the, the, part, the scene we'll have to skip where he gives them instructions about the manna in the morning and the quail at night. He tells them not to take too much, not to take too little. Uh, God, God is a kind God who never is keeping anything from us. You know, we, we sing, All I have needed thy hand hath provided. Well, I think we're singing that in church today, second hour. You know, the... Um, Psalm 84.11, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. There's nothing God is ever keeping from his children that they need, which is a great promise to rest in. But what he does here is he's, he's testing Israel. Exodus 15.25, uh, at the very end of that, after it talks about giving them the, the water, there he set for them a statue and a judgment, and there he tested them. And again in 16.4, it says he's going to give them bread at the end that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my law. The point is not pass-fail the test. What he's doing is he's showing them what they're like. And while we're all familiar with testing over the last couple years, um, uh, Israel here tests disbelief and disobedient positive. I mean, that's what they show. They show themselves to be people who do not trust God, who do not obey God, which is amazing because you'll have Jethro in chapter 18, a Midianite priest confess there's no one like the one true God. So you have a, a, a Gentile, you, you have two different kinds of Gentiles. You have the Amalekites, chapter 17, who rebel. But then you have another kind of Gentile, Jethro, who, uh, who acknowledges who God is. Um, thus, thus proving what God cares more about, even here, is not so much ethnicity. He cares about who has faith in him. I skipped the part earlier, chapter 12 says, a mixed multitude went, with, uh, went out with Israel, which means that some of the Egyptians said, yep, that is the God, we're going to go with them. And we're going to roll with them as well. Israel's biggest problem is that they complain. They complain again in chapter 16. Um, chapter 16, no, chapter 17. It says they complain at Massa, verse 7. He named the place Massa and Meribah because they ask, is Yahweh among us or not? This is a warning. I talked to the high school students, and I think it's a good thing to, to talk to us as well. Um, co- complaining is dangerous. Psalm 95 says that the beginning of disbelief for the people of Israel, began at Massa and Meribah. And Hebrews 3 picks up on that. It says, do not harden your hearts this day. Like we sometimes think of complaining as a small sin. Complaining is a gateway to unbelief. Because when we complain, we are questioning God's character, God's goodness, God's provision for us. Uh, let's keep moving. Chapter 19 and 20, the DTR at Sinai. Um, some of you are not aware what a DTR is. 
Now, let me explain. There's a fine academic establishment up north called the Masters University, and there will be guys who are looking to get married who occasionally will say, well, let's go get coffee. And before the girl goes out, all her friends hover around and say, well, what is this? Re- do you define this relationship? What are his intentions behind buying you coffee? Does he have a down payment? It, what? Do not let him. Do not let him rob your heart. And it's like, well, let's detail. I'm sorry, by the way. I apologize. I just offended somebody. And DTR, let's define the relationship. And that's what happens here. Sinai is about defining the relationship between God and his people. So they finally make it to Sinai. And what we find is, well, we learn a little bit about who Israel is. Chapter 19. Who is Israel? And by the way, this will reflect for us as well. This explains a good deal of who we are. Now Moses went up to God, and Yahweh called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I lifted you up on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Number one, there are saved people. So then, if you will indeed listen to my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all the peoples. There are treasured people. God loves them. He delights in them. They're his special treasure. It says, you'll be our treasured people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. That is, they are supposed to be a missionary people. Uh, They are to be a people that represent, what does a priest do? It goes between God and man. And the nations are supposed to come to know God through the people of Israel. They're the means by which the nation should be introduced to the one true God. And then he says, you'll be a, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They're meant to be a holy people. And that's enough right there. You could just do on that for ourselves. Every day, what does it mean that I am a saved, not a self-made person? What does it mean that I'm God's treasure, even in light of how unworthy I am? I'm a missionary. I'm among the missionary people, and I'm supposed to be a holy people. So we learn that. But we also learn that in this relationship, this is not a relationship between equals. Okay, This is not a relationship of equals because God tells them, go tell the people you're going to come meet with me, verse 10. But go to the people and set them apart as holy today and tomorrow. Let them wash their garments. Let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, Yahweh will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And then you shall set bounds for all people around, saying, Beware, you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or surely shot through, whether beast or man, he shall not live." There's a, there's a relationship with God that people are going to have, but they're only supposed to come so close. Right? There's going to be a distance. Why? Because they're not equals. God is greater than them. In fact, we even see here um, almost like a, a preview of what the tabernacle is going to be like. Like all the people come up to the edge of the mountain, and then Aaron, along with the priest, can go up to like sort of a midsection part, and then only Moses can kind of go behind the veil of smoke to meet with God individually. You have these sort of three parts that are happening here. Why? Well, because God is holy. It's a reminder that though we have been forgiven, God is still greater than us. This section helps us put the Ten Commandments into perspective. So chapter 20 is something we're very familiar with. These are the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words. But let's think about the context here. First of all, what I, when I asked the high school students, I asked them this question, true or false? In the Old Testament, 
believers were saved by keeping the law and by faith. And in the New Testament, they were saved by faith alone. And a bunch of them, before we taught Exodus, their answer was, uh, that's a true statement. They said, I agree with that. Now, that's not true. Because did God say, I have heard the affliction of my people in, Israel, in Egypt, and I have come down to deliver them if they obey these Ten Commandments? No, the law comes after the deliverance. Now, once again, we will say the purpose of God's commandments is to help us see His holiness and our sinfulness. And by the way, the people totally tremble when they see this. And that is part of what the the law should do. It should help us to see how far we fall short. But here in Exodus 20, I mean, how strange of a story would be. God miraculously rescued them from Egypt so that he himself could condemn them in Sinai. That doesn't make sense, right? No, the law here is given in the context of relationship. So here's this God I'm in covenant with. How do I obey him? These Ten Commandments. How do I show my love for him? These commandments, right? Jesus said, if you love me, you'd keep my commandments. How do I worship him? I worship him not through a heartfelt song on Sunday, though that's part of it, but by honoring my mother and father and by keeping the Sabbath holy and by not coveting. That's how I worship this God. See, this fills in what our relationship with God. We don't get to define what our relationship with God is like. We don't get to define, I worship God through this, I worship God through this. God says, you worship me like this, and you're a missionary people like this, and you're a holy people like this. By the way, the law also, do you see how it's a reflection on how good God is? Do you notice, do you know any single country in the world that would disagree with laws 5 through 10? You know, for the most part, like you, you see rebellion in our country for sure. But like most people are down with like, you need to honor your parents. I don't know a single country that's like, eh, we're good with murder, you know, and, and we could see it in ours with some ways, but overall they have not, no, no country has said we embrace murder of all kinds. We embrace stealing of all kinds. We embrace lying of all kinds, right? Well, you know, you know why these commands are good? Because verse two, I am Yahweh, your God. These commands flow from the nature of who God is. They reflect his character, his goodness. Uh, let's let's. We've got twenty chapters left in ten minutes. So let me let me summarize this. I know, but here's the good news. Here's what I would say: the last uh, 10, 20 chapters, I, I preached just four sermons. I think there's more time that could be spent on them. I also think you can get the gist of them. So I don't, I'm not feel up short you today. We'll call this one uh, "God So Loved the World." And so twenty one to twenty. I know cheesy youth pastor jokes. Um, 21 to 24 is the law. And let me just read you this. Uh, Psalm 119, 144, Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. Righteous, Psalm 119, 137, Righteous are you, O Yahweh, and your, right are your rules. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in faithfulness. If you were to read Exodus 21 to 24, what you get again is, what's the context of the book? This is how you worship God. This is how you live as a holy people. This is how you live as a missionary people. This is how you show your love for the Lord. And what you find is that these laws are good. They're good. You read through them, and you will find, you will find that it handles the issue of, of slavery, which is different than slavery we had in our country. It is a much more charitable, 
um, far less permanent, not permanent all form of slavery, that seeks to give equity and care for people in a cashless society. Uh, there's care for women, particular female slaves in this. There's equity for people so that nobody gets robbed. There's a welcoming of foreigners and the oppressed. There's opportunities for social flourishing. There's a way that you take personal responsibility for damages you do to others. Uh, there, there's structure for personal property. There's, there's no stealing allowed, even the stealing of someone's virginity not allowed. We see a kind and gracious and, and uh, uh, rebelling against or, or laws against being greedy, not taking interest from people excessively, uh, a command even to feed the needy. These are good commands. I think if you read these, the, the law, for so many people, the law, they're like, oh, it's a deterrent, and i got to get out of the law. It makes God seem harsh. Oh, friends, God is so good and gracious. Read through these commands later, and you will see that they reflect God's character. And then the, the, the question is not like, well, do we obey the law? Well, it's like, well, of course we obey these laws. Maybe not all the exact same way, but we find ways. How do we honor the character of God that's being reflected in these four chapters? Because it's his character, his holiness, that he wants his people to resemble. Uh, chapter 25 to 31 is the tabernacle. Now, this is where most reading plans come to die. Uh, even now, two of my high schoolers left right here. I understand, guys. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. Yeah. And uh, I, I got to admit that the, the, the tabernacle is a hard read. I mean, there's gopher wood and acacia, and you're like, this is the hardest Ikea manual I've, I've ever read in my life. And let me, let me highlight a couple of things. I'm going to do it via pictures because we, we don't have time to go through it all. It's so good. When I, was, when I would read about the tabernacle before, I would picture it as like, just like a dirty, tan tent. And if you read about it, go, let's go to 25, chapter 25. He says, verse 2, speak with the sons of Israel, take a contribution for me. From every man whose heart is willing, you shall take my contribution. This is the contribution which you shall take from them. Gold, silver. Think about the colors here. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, scarlet material, fine linen, goat hair, ram skin dyed red, porpoise skins, acacia wood, oil for lighting, spices for the anointing oil, for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and setting stones for the ephod and for the breastplate. And let them make a sanctuary for me. This is, this is beautiful. And there's, thinking of the senses, it's going to smell amazing. This is, this is sort of, I've got some pictures, some higher, some lower resolution. So you'd have an outer court, an inner court, and the Holy of Holies in there. But I like this because this shows a lot more color uh, than what we picture in our minds. This is the outline. So like I said, three parts. So here's where anyone could go. They'd enter in this way. Uh, this is where the priests would go, and only the high priest can come in here, the Holy of Holies. This is where the ark is. Uh, this, is the, um, uh, this is the lampstand that... Uh, oh, let me see how I picture that in a second. There we go. Yeah, yeah. So this is what the lampstand would look like. If you read the description of the priest's robes, there's all these stones um, it, it's supposed to be beautiful. The lampstand would have looked kind of like a tree, potentially. So a couple of things to emphasize. One, it's, it's like regal. It, it's, it's showing God's holiness. Like, wow, this, this is precious. This is important. The second thing is there's a lot of Edenic language here. So you think about blues and perfumes and onyx stones. You're like, wait a second, that has, that has Genesis 1 implications to it. And, and then I go back to this, and I realize that um, this would be facing east the way it's described. And to leave the tabernacle is to go east. 
I'm trying to think if anyone else ever left anything before headed east, right? It's, it's meant to be almost like an Eden 2.0. Uh, again, this one's blurry, but I really like the colors on this. Why, why is that important? Because, well, because of 25 verse 8 in your Bible. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Here's why the tabernacle is really good news. God wants to dwell with his people. I'm not going to have time to give summary statements, so let me give some of them now. The Exodus story is not about freedom for the sake of personalized individualism. It is freedom from King Pharaoh, who makes his people build monument cities for him. God delivers them so that he would be their king and he might dwell among them. It's transferring Israel from a brutal king to a much more benevolent king. A king who gives them no rest to a king who gives them a Sabbath. A king who says, build something for my glory to a king who says, I will dwell with you and you will be my people. Isn't that also the story of the gospel? God doesn't save us so we could be our own selves. God saves us so we could be with him. But by the way, the, the um, it's him going to the Holy of Holies. Um, the Holy of Holies, uh, one more. Holy of Holies is shaped like a perfect cube. So is the new Jerusalem. Because we get to dwell with him forever. The end goal of salvation is that God would bring us to himself. Now there's a problem with that. And it's the problem of sin. It's the problem that we have in Exodus as well. God's people, while, while Moses is on the mountain receiving good laws and getting instructions about how God is going to dwell with those people, the people are conspiring to create an idol. They create a golden cow. They melt their gold down and say, this is our God. And, and God is furious with the people. Moses comes down, he smashes the tablets when he sees what's going on. Chapter 32, verse 20, it says that, uh, where do I have here? Not verse 20, verse 30. It says, it happened that next day Moses said to the people, you yourselves have committed a great sin, but now I am going up to Yahweh. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. He throws the tablets down. The covenant is broken because the people of Israel have broken the covenant. And so how can they be right with God? How can they actually get to enjoy this? How do they have any hope of this happening? We come to chapter 34, verse 6 and 7. This is after Moses had asked. Yeah, we're, we're skipping a bunch, but it's so good. You've got to read it. Verse 6, Then Yahweh passed in front of him, in front of Moses, and called out, Yahweh, Yahweh, God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the grandchildren, to the third and fourth generation. So here's who God is. He is a God of compassion, and he is a God of judgment. And so how do we know what's going to happen with Israel? Well, more important than that for us, how do, how do you know what's going to happen with us? See, Moses went to God, chapter 32, verse 30, and says, maybe I could atone for your sins. And it's interesting how often Jesus is portrayed as a Moses-like character who 
During the time of his birth, uh, the leader of the time wants to kill all the firstborn. He's, he goes into Egypt, comes out of Egypt, goes up on a mountain, not to receive the word, but deliver a word in, a fee, in Matthew chapter 5. But where Jesus is different is he can atone for the sins of the people. The high priest at the time of Jesus, John 11, says it's, it's, it's good. He doesn't know what he's saying. He says it's good that one man should die for the nation. And that's who we have in Christ. What I want to highlight is this is God is a God who forgives, and he, he forgives. It's according to his character to forgive all who repent. But this is also a warning. It's according to his character to judge those who don't repent. I made a big deal about this when I taught Habakkuk a few weeks ago, but you know, we, I, I worry when I think about our young people that we have protected them from any sort of consequences from their actions. So when I worked as an algebra teacher, if a kid failed a test, I certainly got an email about why I didn't prepare them well enough or why I shouldn't do that. Or we will say, this is your punishment for the next three weeks, and then we'll let them off. So why then, if a kid has always been relieved of any threat of consequence, believe that the threat of hell should be real? It's very much real. Why? Because God is Yahweh. Yahweh acts like Yahweh. He would be going against his nature to not judge those who don't repent. But those who do repent, he forgives, and he's compassionate, and he casts our sins into the sea. Why? Because we repented really well? No, because he's Yahweh, and he acts like Yahweh. What Chapter 35 to 40, you might think, man, it, chapter 35 to 40 is literally almost a word-for-word repetition of chapters, 28, uh, chapters 25 through 31. It's tabernacle again. And you might think, well, why is that in there? Here's why. God promised them good things. They broke the covenant. Will they get the blessings? And the answer is yes. How many of them? Every single one of them. Every detail of the tabernacle is repeated again. Why? Because God is still going to give them every little detail that he promised them. Exodus 40 ends like this. We'll go there. The very good ending. The very good ending is about God giving his people what he promised them, mainly himself. I love verse 38. Throughout all their journeys, the cloud of Yahweh was on the tabernacle by day and was in the fire by night and in the sight of all the house of Israel. I love this picture at the end. I think it fits perfectly. Here's Israel dwelling in tents. There's instructions about that in Leviticus and Numbers about how they're supposed to set up camp. I think it's Numbers. Um, But here's God dwelling in their midst. That's the picture of Exodus. And isn't that really the picture of the gospel? God delivering his people so they would be his servants and he might dwell in their midst. That's who God is, friends. That's the same God we worship today. So the same God that we sing to, we pray to, that we obey, is the God who always delivers a people and plans to bring him home. That is who our God is, and there is none like him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this brief time to look at such a tremendous revelation of yourself. Lord, we want to give you praise that you are the God who conquers all people, that you are the God who is holy and yet near to us, that you are the God who forgives our sin. You are a God who one day will bring us home. You give us clarity on how to live for you. Lord, you give us a way to maintain relationship with you, even as we fall short. We thank you for your goodness and your grace. Help us to be servants of you, Lord. Help us to acknowledge you, not ourselves or anything else as God. Help us to fear you and believe your word. And may you receive all the glory in our lives. 
It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, thank you so much.